Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with former U.S. diplomat Mietek Bodoshinsky, assistant professor of politics at Pomona. Welcome, Mietek. Thank you. Great. So, Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to talk with us here in, <laughs> in cyberspace. Um, so how are you adjusting to life in this strange new world of coronavirus? Uh, you know, not so badly. First of all, I should say I'm, you know, lucky to have a job like a job at, at Pomona, which some people don't have now. So, you know, I'm collecting my, my salary. I had this, <laughs> yeah. this generous uh, parental leave this semester. So, um, so you know, all in all, uh, could be much worse. And, you know, you mentioned my diplomatic career. Um, in some ways that prepared me for this because I've been at a couple of, of postings where I was also on a sort of sort of lockdown because of uh, security concerns. And mm. so, in some, in some ways, this kind of reminds me of, of that. Um, yeah, just being ready, you know, for the not a lot of uncertainties about what's going to happen the next day. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Dick, tell us about your um, early years. What, what, and and when was that um, that sparked your interest first in international relations? Well, I was an immigrant to this uh, country as a child, um, along with my uh, uh, parents. Um, we actually didn't intend to uh, to stay here originally, but my father came on a on a scholarship, a Fulbright uh, scholarship, which sends both foreigners to the states and Americans overseas. And um, he was uh, posted or placed in in Wyoming, of all of all places in the, the West. And um, for him, for him, actually, it was kind of exciting because one one of the kinds of uh, um, American TV shows you could watch or American movies you could watch in communist Poland were Westerns. And, and so Wyoming kind of reminded him of some of what he had seen. <laughs> and uh, so my father uh, went first and then my mother and I um, came to visit him with all intentions of, of, uh, of going back. Um, my father was, and my, my, both my parents, especially my father, weren't, weren't big fans of the communist regime. He wasn't a major dissident, but a little bit of a dissident. And but things were a little bit better, and this, this was very end of the '70s. Things seemed to be a little bit better, and also um, they were very close to their families um, in Poland. And so the idea of, of of starting all over somewhere else at that point already in their in their late '30s or whatever would seem seem like too much. So um, so while uh, we were in Wyoming, um, uh, things took a turn for the worst in Poland. A, t- a turn for the worst, excuse me. Um, a movement called Solidarity, a workers' movement. Um, that rose up against a communist state. And if you think about the ironies of that, workers, workers rebelling against what was supposed to be a worker state, um, uh, you know, became a very widespread movement and, and shook the communist regime to its core. Um, at one point, you know, raising, raising the ire of the Soviet Union, of course. Um, you know, there was talk of, of, of an invasion by Moscow and so on. Anyway, things, things got bad in Poland and my father started getting messages from his coworkers at this, he was an engineer at this technical institute where he was, where that was his home base in Poland, saying that, you know, uh, people are being locked up, uh, especially people who are known to be opponents of the regime. Um, you know, maybe you should consider consider um, not coming back. Um, and at the same time as this was happening, Wyoming is a is a small place. Everybody knows knows everyone. And uh, through someone at at the at the Energy Institute where my father was working, 
Um, he, he got connected to, a, <clears throat> to the sole member of Wyoming's congressional delegation at the time, who was called Dick Cheney. And um, it was Cheney, in fact, who, who really pushed, you know, out of an, a, kind of an abundance of anti-communist ideology, pushed my father, uh, say, you know, just don't worry, uh, you can, um, you can, uh, uh, you know, stay here. Reagan, this was just at the, at the kind of um, moment when, when, uh, when, you know, Reagan had already won the, uh, the election. It was still Carter, but he was, he was uh, coming into office the following year. And, um, and he said, don't worry, you know, Reagan is anti-communist. You know, we'll give you political asylum. Everything will be fine. Um, it turns out that it wasn't so easy. Uh, so he may have had good intentions, but there's a, a bureaucracy you have to deal with, the former Immigration and Naturalization Service, which has now been, you know, morphed into DHS and is called, called something else. And uh, they, they weren't so forgiving because my father was on a visa called J-1, which some of you may know from your experience with Pomona students. It's, a, it's an exchange visa, and you, there's a requirement attached to it that you have to go back to your home country for two years. And that's only way, you know, you can only be waived by the Secretary of State. And, it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to be waived. So, so you know, long story short, um, uh, we, we didn't automatically get an adjustment in our status. And so we were out of status um, for a number of years, actually, almost seven years until we benefited from, we applied for political asylum, but eventually benefited from what was called uh, a general amnesty under Reagan. Ironically, again, a Republican president, you know, amnesty yeah. is not a word that we, we use today. <laughs> when we, when finally... Um, you know, the, the process to get our green cards began and so on. So we were, you know, sort of in this in this un, uncertain limbo uh, for a while, very unpleasant uh, limbo. But of course, you know, the privilege of having a father, an educated father with who was employed during that time and, and so on. So so I guess, you know, going back to your question, Mark, uh, um, or sorry, it was Patty, um, you know, just the experience of, of, of being in that situation of, of kind of, uh, of being in this, in this limbo, you know, knowing that I had lots of family back in Poland that we may never see again, because effectively the decision to stay at that time, nobody thought that system would change, wasn't a decision that you would never see your family again. Um, and, and, you know, going to court as a little kid um, at one point uh, in, in, in a court in Denver, which was the closest place where there was an immigration court, um, you know, we were on the verge of deportation and the judge asked us where we um, you know, where we would go if we were deported. And I remember as, as a, you know, little kid for some reason being fascinated by China and blurting out China, which was the, you know, completely wrong answer to, to name another communist country. <laughs> <laughs> go back to, and I remember the, uh, the lawyer uh, elbowing my, my father. Um, you know, that was the wrong, <laughs> wrong answer. Uh, so this, you know, extended kind of, you know, I remember when we finally did get uh, a status that was already when we had moved to California, my father was hired by Chevron, uh, Richmond Refinery up north. Um, you know, both my parents' tears coming down their faces uh, as the judge, you know, gave us the, you know, because of the, the new legislation, uh, gave us the right to stay. So it was, you know, it was a, uh, yeah, so that, so that, that whole experience, I think of, of, of um, you know, being from a place where I, I, I couldn't go back to not fully understanding that, but uh, you know, that definitely got me interested in. <laughs> How know. old were you, Mitek? Mitek, when this? Uh... Yes, now so you see, I'm aging myself. So I was, <laughs> I was a kid, a kid throughout this, but um, so you know, the, at the moment we got the the permanent residency, or or you know, that process was locked in. I was um, 11, 12, mm-hmm. 86, yeah. So tell us about your your. Um, educational journey and how you um, uh, uh, got interested in life in foreign service. Well, you know, I, I grew up in in the in the Bay Area, and and although my father had a good job at at, at Chevron, um, because we started late in this country, I, I grew up in a you know a, a neighborhood that was um, a, a pocket 
in a city, Richmond, which was which was okay, but a city that in the in the '80s, in particular, and, and early '90s, was having a hard time, um, you know, crack epidemic and and gang issues and all these things. So, so I, um, um, you know, grew up in uh, close to a high school that a public high school that had uh, metal detectors and so on going, and was the most pleasant place. And, and my parents sent me to a Catholic school in Berkeley, which was a better environment, but not necessarily, you know, full of academic high achievers. Um, they drew on a lot of students from different backgrounds. I gave a lot of scholarships, especially students from from inner city Oakland and so on. So I grew up in a very diverse environment, I think very aware of inequality in the United States, but also not in an academically, um, uh, you know, not at the kind of high school where there was uh, a lot of AP or any AP or honors classes or whatever. And, and you know, certainly not knowing about liberal arts colleges um, and also not having any connection to places like Washington DC, you know, beyond the fact that we had this immigration um, issue and we had some, you know, assistance from politicians at one point, but, but not really having, um, you know, any kind of insight into, into certainly the State Department or anything like that. Um, uh, so, so very little, you know, kind of at that point. I, I think one of the things I, I sort of remember, you know, well from growing up in the Bay Area, which was, which was a very progressive place, which in some ways was wonderful, because I think it imbued, imbued me with some very progressive values um, that, I, that, I, um, that I cherish. But at the same time, um, because of its very, for lack of a better word, you know, kind of lefty, lefty feel, there was also a lot of people who, you know, well-meaning people um, uh, who had grown up in the, in the, in the Bay Area who, who, for instance, you know, expressed admiration for some, for some communist dictatorships, whether that be, you know, the Cuban uh, regime or, or, or Mao or, or whatever. And I remember my, my father especially, but both my parents, you know, reacting very kind of strongly to that because it was sort of, a, you know, again, a, a driven by ideology and, and but, but not, not always being clear-eyed about the fact that you know human rights abuses can certainly um, take place on the part of um, on the part of uh, right-wing regimes, which the U.S. supported at the time in Latin America and so on, but also you know can equally take place in in, in communist regimes. And so I think that also <clears throat> you know I, I should I should add that that you know some some of those conversations which I which I heard at home you know also got me interested in um, in questions of of democracy, democratization, repression, human rights, and so on, which also animates my work. Um, so, so I didn't have a lot of exposure to, you know, th those kinds of international things. It wasn't until I was 16 years old. Um, at that time, we still had, didn't have access to a, a U.S. passport. So I managed to get a re-entry document, which would be much harder to get now. So we were still sort of in that, you know, you know permanent residence, but we couldn't have the Polish passport. And anyway, because the regime hadn't changed there. And I went on, a, I got a scholarship uh, to go on a, an exchange program called Youth for Understanding to Sweden. Mm -hmm. for the summer. And that made a huge impression on me because at home I had heard that communism was bad, you know, but then I'd grown up in, in, in kind of, you know, some of the, the parts of the Bay Area that were really hit hard by some of the issues of the 80s and, and 90s and, you know, sort of seeing inequality up close and then going to a place like Sweden where it seems like they had a little bit of socialism uh, that worked, right? And it challenged some of, my, some of my assumptions. It seemed like this kind of paradise where everybody had access to healthcare and in, in, in ways it was, especially back then. Um, and in the following summer, I did an exchange program in Mexico in Monterrey and Durango, and that that also uh, you know kind of started opening through through my high school started opening my eyes to to you know the possibilities of international travel and so on. And I think I was I was hooked. What are some of the posts that you held as a diplomat? Can you tell us about some of the experiences you had, and what was it like to represent U.S. diplomacy in these parts of the world? 
I had a uh, post in three different regions. I started in the Balkans uh, and, and I served in both Albania and Kosovo, um, uh, both transitional countries in the case of Kosovo. At the time, it wasn't even an independent country yet. It was just on the verge of, of becoming independent. Now it is, although it's not recognized fully. Um, Albania was a, a, a fascinating place um, that uh, had been under a communist dictatorship that was very different than Poland. Um, it was a hardline kind of um, neo-Maoist, um, North Korea-like place that was completely closed to the world and, um, and had you know, suffered greatly as a result, both from repression and also economic deprivation. And so I was there not long into the, into the transition considering the, the decades of, of being so closed. Um, but it was also a place, uh, because you asked what it was like to be an American diplomat, where, um, where Americans were, were well-loved, and so it made it easier at some point, because that was the period when we had invaded Iraq and Americans weren't well-loved <laughs> around the world. <laughs> Certainly my, my European colleagues uh, you know, had, had some difficult conversations about that. And, uh, but Albanians themselves were very welcoming, and it was um, you know, ideal, in a way, first place to serve as a diplomat, because they didn't have any security restrictions, or very few. I could you know, go out and meet people who had been trained in the language, um, which, which made it even you know, better. And I was working in public diplomacy, so educational, cultural programs. And, um, and you know, so I didn't just deal with, with elites, I dealt with a lot of uh, you know, filmmakers and artists and students and so on. So it was, it was really a wonderful uh, a first assignment. Um, and then I went to Japan, where I had lived before as an English teacher. And uh, you know, similar to, to Albania, Japanese are generally very favorably predisposed to Americans. I didn't have to answer or deal with a lot of a lot of hard issues about about policy, um, and had a, a very nice did a advanced Japanese training in Yokohama, and then and then had a posting in Tokyo at the embassy, which was really lifestyle wise the most wonderful posting of all. It's a wonderful place to live, um, and uh, did some interesting work actually on on promoting clinical trials between the U.S. and uh, and Japan. Uh, Japan often doesn't want to participate in clinical trials for especially for 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 drugs for rare cancers and so on started thinking about those clinical trials as I hear about the, the clinical trials for, for COVID now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, diplomacy is not only about the hardcore political issues or trade issues. It can also be about promoting international cooperation in areas like clinical trials. Um, and, um, and then after that, uh, I, was in, I was in Japan and uh, I had, I was choosing my next posting and it's kind of an internal competitive bidding process. And I ended up with two choices. One was, was uh, Cambodia, um, which came with a year of training in Khmer, which is a, um, an interesting but rather boutique language. It's spoken in one country, Cambodia. Or to go to uh, Libya via two years of Arabic training um, and, um, and to serve there in Tripoli. And at the time, this was you know, 2009, 2010, Libya, as well as other Arab countries had been under the throes of dictatorship for many decades. Libya had been led for nearly four decades by, by one man, <laughs> you know, kind of a, a Louis XVI type, type uh, you know, l'état c'est moi type figure, Gaddafi. And so I remember friends telling me, oh, you know, don't go to Libya um, because in Cambodia it's, yeah, it's author you know, kind of authoritarian, but you'll have more, more freedom of movement. Southeast Asia is beautiful. And Tripoli, you'll be, you know, confined. The politics are boring. It's just one guy's in charge. You know, we have a kind of bad relationship. And, uh, you know, of course, in the interim, everything changed and the Libya I ended up with preceded by Egypt, actually, for extra Arabic training. Um, you know, both of those countries ended up being very different countries than I had agreed to go to. Um, and, you know, this is one of the things about the Foreign Service or, or any kind of work, really, where you're, where you're an expat or, or working internationally. You, know, you never know um, what's going to happen, right? And, and, um, and I, 
you know, ended up being lucky to be in, in the region at this, at this revolutionary uh, moment, um, which will stay with me forever. Yeah, if you can tell us about that. I mean, having witnessed the Arab Spring up close, um, you know, what was that experience like? Um, it's, it's really hard to, you know, to, to recreate or to, to explain what it was like to be in Egypt, especially literally months after the revolution, when you had, you know, for the first time, people felt like there was this, there was this kind of psychological weight off their shoulders. You know, people were talking, everybody was talking about politics, but even people who were apolitical were not interested, right? They, they really saw this new future. And so part of it was almost like a, a caricature of a revolutionary moment, you know, on the main square, Tahrir Square in Cairo, there was, there was just groups of people, young, old, different social classes, different backgrounds, um, you know, uh, uh, sitting down together, you know, kind of these tents had been erected during the revolution and they remained afterwards, um, uh, you know, discussing things uh, sometimes very in, in, intensely. Um, uh, it was it was a moment also when when there was fears about security because the police had melted away. The the police was was feared by the people and and uh, but but now things have been reversed and the police feared the people, so the police <laughs> melted away. And so there was this just a little bit of a sense of kind of you know like anything goes um, um, in the streets. And um, yeah, it was it was uh, you know the, I was there for my main duty there was to continue studying Arabic in Egypt. While I was there as a diplomat. And I remember our teachers, um, these young uh, Egyptian teachers of Arabic who taught me so much, not only about Arabic, but about the country, would take us outside and we'd just stop people on the street and ask them questions, you know, which was unthinkable before and unthinkable again today, regrettably, um, yeah. about, what, about, about what was happening. Um, and same thing in Libya, you know, I was there for the first elections and I used to, as an academic, kind of poo-poo the first elections. Now elections, you know, do not a democracy make. And yet it was, you know, for a lot of ordinary Libyans, it was this incredible sense of empowerment um, to be able to vote for the first time in their lives. Um, and, you know, it was it was a really, really amazing, magical moment that unfortunately, you know, quickly faded um, in both places and other places and uh, that had experienced Arab Spring. So what happened there? The Arab Spring was, was a hopeful time. You said that even apolitical people were interested in politics and um, what did it go wrong? And are there still some hopeful signs for that area? Yeah, let me answer the second question first. I think we've seen hopeful signs in other um, Arab countries over this, this past year. Um, Algeria is an example where there have been weekly protests now interrupted by the, by the pandemic, but, but weekly protests since last year calling for meaningful change, even after they overthrew a kind of longtime strongmen, uh, they continued demanding change. Um, Lebanon, um, also calling for better governance, you know, uh, good governance. Uh, um, Sudan, um, also last year, uh, uh, a political transition, the deal between the military and the opposition was formed, and, and the former strongman Omar al-Bashir was not only taken down, but now is in, in jail and, and, you know, possibly will be transferred to International Criminal Court for, for crimes against humanity. Um, and Iraq, a country where I also served um, later on when I took a leave from Pomona, um, as my last foreign kind of foreign service assignment, um, uh, Iraq, where there has been a kind of you know a, a corrupt, corrupt governments that that use sect and ethnicity for their own purposes, um, you know pe people have had uh, young people especially had organized uh, large protests uh, for for many weeks calling for for more accountable governance. Um, so I think the the spirit of the Arab Spring, the idea that that the street is more powerful than the regime, stands. But at the same time, in countries like Egypt. Uh, you have a resurgence of authoritarianism. 
that's um, externally supported um, by some of uh, our allies, U.S. allies like the Emiratis and the Saudis. Um, and then in Libya, you have a situation of, of virtual civil war, uh, which is which is also fueled by outside powers. And you ask Patty why or what what happened. I mean, each country is unique. Um, in in Egypt, there was a very powerful military uh, that never went away. That had its own um, uh, kind of interests and 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 goals. Uh, certainly didn't believe in democracy. Uh, that was sort of standing by and willing to pounce uh, when the chance presented itself. Certainly, people were were some some Egyptians got tired of, of sort of the chaos and uncertainty. Um, but I would also again point to outside powers, and here I would say uh, the role of of the Gulf countries, who again are U.S. allies. Um, in in um, pushing their own goals for Egypt, which is military rule, um, you know, f funding that and pushing it in all kinds of other overt and covert ways, and and the U.S. eventually, you know, losing its resolve, the Obama administration, and now much in a much worse way, the Trump administration giving up on on support for democracy in the region. Um, Libya, a more complicated situation where this where where when Gaddafi fell, everything fell, all the institutions fell, um, and. Um, there were uh, there was a couple of years of, of hope, but the um, uh, there were divisions in the country that uh, that uh, from Qaddafi era and, and that predated Qaddafi, um, and um, but there were also political decisions uh, made um, that uh, um, that I think took the country into the wrong direction. Without going into details, but again, focusing on the outside factors, the U.S. and Europe. Um, as well as a couple of Arab countries that led the intervention in 2011, they also dropped the ball. You know, they, they intervened um, on behalf of the doctrine of, of responsibility to protect, to protect civilians for humanitarian reasons, but then, you know, didn't want to own the situation afterwards. And, and certainly myself and many other people involved in, in Libya at the time didn't think that a Iraq-style, you know, Marines uh, military intervention was the right thing. But between doing nothing and doing so doing that, there's you can you can do something. And unfortunately, the Europeans, which Obama had hoped would take the lead, did very little. Uh, we did very little, especially after the Benghazi, you know, debacle. Um, and then on top of that, again, you had these outside powers, um, the Gulf countries, um, uh, Turkey, eventually, you know, also getting involved um, in in the conflict for their own own reasons. Yeah. And, help bring bring things you know to where we are today and your your newest book um uh u.s democracy promotion in the arab world beyond interest versus ideals um you you um you get into a lot of that right the can you tell us a little bit about the about the book the origins of your book and and how you went about doing that yeah i think i think i tried to in, in this book to to connect my experience being in a U.S. diplomat during the, and after the Arab Spring, and the disappointment of of how our efforts, what I thought were were pretty sincere efforts at, at a certain point in the Obama administration to to really change the playbook, the U.S. playbook in the Middle East, whereby for you know decades we had supported uh, authoritarian governments and leaders. Uh, we thought that that was better for stability, better for you know fighting terrorism and so on, to a new approach which acknowledged. The, the demands of, of ordinary people for more accountable government, you know, we, we sort of gave up on that. Um, we dropped the ball, we, uh, we got distracted, um, we lost faith. And we lost faith for some good reasons, to be fair. Some things on the ground weren't going that well. Um, so I tried to connect that experience with my experience in the Balkans, um, both as a PhD student when I had studied the, the Balkans, written a dissertation, and then a book about, about the, process, the democratization process there. 
And one thing I realized in thinking about the, the two regions and, and the role of, of outside democracy promotion is that in the Balkans, there had been, there had first, the first point is that there had been real faith that, that, that democracy could succeed in a real coordinated effort on the part of the US and the European Union in, in, in consistently uh, um, promoting democracy. Um, in the Arab world, a very different approach. And I think that part of that comes because democratization was frankly more difficult, but, but part of it also comes from this, just this deeply rooted sense among Western policymakers that the Arabs, the people in the Middle East aren't ready for democracy, right? That democracy doesn't serve people well. And, um, and, and sort of playing to the hands of, of you know, the naysayers, playing to the hands of the Gulf uh, monarchies who also believe that uh, very much. Um, and so one also contrast, another contrast between the Balkans and the Arab world was that in, in the Balkans, you didn't have these outside powers intervening to roll back democracy. Uh, Russia has become that more recently, and, and China to a degree, but especially Russia. But at, at the time that I was doing that research, Russia was still weak and didn't try to exert its influence in that way. Um, but in the Arab world, by contrast, you do have these outside, uh, outside powers. Um, and here again, I point out the Emiratis and Saudis especially, who have a particular view of what kind of governance there should be in the, in the region, and, and it's not compatible with democracy. And so in a way, you know, despite all the internal problems in places like Libya and Egypt uh, and, and you know, Syria and other places, Yemen, I still think that you know, it was outside intervention, um, you know, the role of, of these, what I call countervailing powers, uh, um, really um, you know, never gave it a chance. Um, and the US also, uh, I think the Obama administration you know, kept saying, well, we don't have leverage, there's nothing we can do. But the problem I see with that and what I say in the book is that, well, how do we know that if we never meaningfully tried? There were several moments where I think we could have acted in a principled way, but, but for various reasons we didn't. You know, once ISIS, Islamic State came about, especially we got distracted by that. We had other, other kinds of needs for cooperation from, from authoritarian regimes in the region. Um, and then of course the Trump administration comes in uh, and now, you know, embraces uh, authoritarianism, uh, people like, like, the, like Sisi, the, uh, I keep mentioning Egypt because I know it well and it's you know, the most important largest Arab country, um, you know, not only embraces Sisi by saying you know, that he's doing a great job, he's my favorite dictator, hosting him in the, in the Oval Office, which just speaks volumes about, about the lack of, of um, priority that this administration assigns to democracy and human rights. Let's take you to a different part of the world. Um, you've written about the effect of uh, disinformation that, and the effect that it could have on U.S. diplomacy. Specifically, you were pointing to the involvement of Russia in the 2016 presidential election. Um, what can we expect in, in the future, in particular this year and our upcoming elect election? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, there's lots of people who are better qualified to talk about uh, this. Um, but I, I think from, you know, from what I understand that Russia has changed its playbook a little bit to, um, to uh, you know, maybe cover up um, rather than starting its own, for instance, just to put it in very simple terms, its own, you know, uh, uh, Facebook uh, site, you know, using, using kind of proxies, promoting, promoting voices. But, you know, at the end of the day, we also have to remember, and this is true for, for Europe, that Russia exploits pre-existing divisions, right? And, and, and in a way, the, the kind of depolarization we have in this country and, and the fact that we have multiple truths <laughs> or at, at, at the very least circulating already, you know, that, that just gives it, I mean, it has a very strong foundation on which to work. So I think we also have to be careful about over, 
overstating the role of Russia, um, whether it's you know meddling in the election here or, or, or supporting populists in Europe. It certainly does that, and it likes to see when the West is divided against itself. It serves Putin's interests. Um, but I think maybe some people also assign too much uh, power uh, to Russia, forgetting our own our own failings, our own divisions, and of course our own institutional failings, which which have become painfully clear through this uh, pandemic. Um, I'm probably going to ask you again to to go into an area where you you don't feel that you're <laughs> you're uh, um, the expert, but uh, with your your Polish background, do you still have connections with? Poland, and what do you think about sort of what's going on with illiberal democracies in in um, so much of Europe? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I go I go to Poland usually at least at least once a year. I um, at, at a certain point um, in my life, when I was an undergraduate student at UCSD, I went to study in Poland uh, for a year, which gave me the opportunity to reestablish those those ties with family that I had left behind and couldn't see for all those years that we had. Uh, you know, um, the Poland that we were dissidents and 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 refugees and you know exiles, whatever. And so we, so so eventually, I was able to to go back and kind of independently, um, you know, establish those ties. And although I haven't really included that much in my academic work since I was an undergraduate, it's something that that really um, you know plays an important role in my in my personal life. Um, you know, ties with my with my cousins and aunts and uncles there, but also. You know, kind of following what's what's happening in Poland. Um, when I went there uh, as an undergraduate student, 95, 96, it was just five years into the transition. And in many ways, it was kind of like what I described for for the post Arab Spring, uh, Libya, Egypt, and so on. It was a time of great hope, certainly a time of some chaos and, and economic pain, as as you know, the entire economy, uh, you know, the former communist economy was entirely owned by the state, collapsed. Um, but to observe that up close and to see a presidential election that happened then and to understand the battle over the past, over, you know, what it meant, how it divided society to be, you know, somebody who was affiliated or collaborator with the communist regime versus somebody who had fought it, you know, really divided society, um, you know, and understanding how seeing those divisions then helped me understand what, what, what's happening now. Um, one of the things I've also explored in my, in my um, ties with Poland that I brought to Poland, to, to Pomona and the colleges a bit through an activity we did last year at uh, through the EU Center, is is the history of Polish-Jewish relations, um, something that I had to kind of also educate myself on. Um, if you allow me to say just a couple of words about this, because it kind of relates to what you're asking about uh, the Polish government today. Um, so so Poland, you know, before the war, had been uh, home to the largest Jewish population in in the world. Um, you know. 99% of whom died uh, um, in the war. Of course, many Catholic Poles, my family's Catholic, died in the, in the war too. And I, because my parents were educated in the communist system, they learned a certain version of history, which was that uh, Poles and Jews uh, suffered together at the hands of the Nazis. There was very little mention at, you know, at home of, of, of Polish anti-Semitism or Polish complicity or so on. And um, it was only after, you know, I finished my Catholic education and went to a big public university, UCSD, that I, started having more Jewish friends. And, and I was, for the first time, made aware and shocked of how much animosity towards Poland there was among many American Jews. And for me, that was, you know, I remember going home and saying to my parents, why? I thought, you know, my, my, grand, my paternal um, grandfather, uh, my mother's father died in Auschwitz. You know, we, I had people who were non-Jewish who also died. And I also, you know, accepted this narrative. 
And it was only through a long process of self-discovery, going back to Poland, you know, talking to my relatives, doing a lot of reading, talking to various experts in the United States that I understood that the story, you know, unfortunately was not so romantic and not so simple that, you know, there was a large degree of, of Polish um, anti-Semitism too. And there was also cases of Polish collaboration uh, with the Nazis and sort of, you know, coming to terms with that has been one of my own personal, personal journeys that has led to some very difficult conversations with some of my relatives in Poland who believe that, you know, take this very nationalistic view that any, you know, that Poland was a victim in any kind of effort to, to re-examine that or to look at it from different perspectives is, is akin to, you know, kind of a treason almost. And, and that, you know, bringing up to your question, Mark, has been heightened by, you know, this government that's in power who I think has played dangerous politics with this issue, this historical issue among others. So they tried to pass a law a couple of years ago that they eventually pulled back from under pressure from the U.S., Israel, and others, whereby you know, mentioning, criminalizing the, even, even the, the mention of Polish complicity in the, in the Holocaust, right? And this oh, comes wow. from a, a, you know, we have to understand this in a context, yeah. but what Poles absolutely hate, and I think understandably hate, is when, when, when you know, Western or, or international officials give speeches where they mention Polish concentration camps. President Obama made that mistake one time, by the way, which, you know, kind of cost him his, 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 uh, <laughs> his reputation in Poland. Later, he apologized. They weren't Polish, they were German concentration camps set up in Poland, right? But, you know, mm -hmm. out of that, and then sort of this, you know, resurgent nationalism comes this effort to like, you know, we're not even going to, we're not even going to open the discussion of the past, right? Um, so anyway, it's, it's like some very difficult um, conversations with my, with some of my cousins, you know, um, about these issues who think that, you know, uh, won't, won't change their line of, you know, Poles were just, just Catholic Poles were just victims. So, you know, I've done a little bit of, of sort of, you know, kind of personal research on this. And we had a session at, uh, like I mentioned, that, that was held at Pitzer last year with, um, based on a documentary film about uh, efforts, you know, Polish-Jewish reconciliation over these issues. It's one issue I followed. Um, but it's, it's been very difficult with my Polish family on my father's side, who I'm closer to. I've had to really stop political conversations um, just to preserve relationships. Um, you know, they, They've always been more conservative than I have, especially in kind of, you know, they're very Catholic and so on. But I think it's, it's, it's taken a hard turn, you know, as, as, it, as this kind of populist narrative has, has um, spread around the world. Um, you know, they'll say things like, you know, uh, Bashar al-Assad is a benevolent dictator, which is just shocking for me. My uncle, who was a, you know, anti-communist -sol anti solidarity um, dissident, a fighter, you know, who sat in jail, who was beaten by the police. How could he, how could he lavish praise on a dictator in the Middle East? Well, because, you know, there's this belief that spread through the populist kind of, you know, channels, the, this, you know, this nationalist press that's also supported by Russia often that Bashar al-Assad, who's an ally of Russia, you know, surprise, surprise, um, is, is, you know, a, a, is a defending Christians, right? And so there's this kind of Christian thing that's built into it. And so this weird mm -hmm. kind of, you know, the world view, everything's been turned on its head, you know? And, and my cousins who, for instance, before would say, well, you know, I don't believe in gay marriage, but, but, um, but you know, they should, you know, people... LGBTQ people should live, they should have the right to live as they want. Now it's taking this hard edge, you know, where it's like, you know, more and more hatred, right? And, you know, there's a bit of anti-Semitism mixed in into that. So, so all of it is hard because there's a lot of family members who I respect and love uh, dearly, who've been very good to me in Poland, who I've kept in touch with, but who've now seemed to have, you know, taken on, you know, partly because of the very polarized media that they read, um, some very hardline, hardline views. And it's hard to you know, reconcile that in my head. And in some ways that parallels, I'm sure, you know, people in this country who maybe have family members or friends, you know, are one side of the political divide or the other, right? And it's yeah. hard to, to understand that. So, so yeah, so I have been following closely and it's, you know, sometimes it's very painful actually because it, it, it's close to home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
that's tough to navigate. Um, we've read that that lots of career dim- diplomats are leaving the State Department. In your opinion, what what is the state of American diplomacy today? Well, it's interesting you ask because one reason that um, that I asked you to move this up and um, and I appreciate it very much is because I was uh, invited belatedly to join a, a kind of working group on the future of American diplomacy that's being headed up by four former very senior ambassadors um, and based at Harvard Kennedy School, uh, Nick Burns, Nancy McEldowney, Marcy Rees, um, and the fourth ambassador escapes my mind now, um, uh, right after this actually, uh, another Zoom meeting. Um, so I think a lot of people are, are, are thinking about, you know, um, uh, you know, the fate of the State Department, especially if, if you know, if, if the Trump administration were to win another four years, but even if it doesn't, right, even if, if Biden or somebody else uh, wins, um, you know, I think the, the decline of diplomacy is a longer, a longer term um, kind of phenomenon um, that transcends just the Trump administration, but it's been accelerated under the Trump administration in many ways. So, um, you know, this has a lot to do with the post, this is coming straight from my foreign policy class, you know, at Pomona has a lot to do with, uh, with the post 9-11 uh, wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, the militarization of diplomacy, the empowerment of the intelligence community often at the expense of diplomats and so on. Um, uh, but then, you know, it goes even further back than that because after the Cold War, we also took resources out of the State Department thinking that we had won, right? And so we don't need diplomacy anymore. So I think there's a, there's a lot of people fighting uh, the good fight and um, some very prominent former, you know, um, uh, diplomats, career diplomats like Bill Burns, who's now the president of the Carnegie Endowment, have been, have been doing a lot of work to promote diplomacy, um, fortunately in this administration with little effect. So. I think you know we don't have hard numbers on how many people are are um, are leaving. Although anecdotally, I think um, there, there's quite a few, um, especially you know especially some people who are already maybe at kind of close to retirement decided that you know it's not worth their while and lost a lot of senior amazing people. Um, I'm working also as a as a volunteer in the foreign policy uh, working groups of the of the Biden campaign, and there I see some you know former diplomats like myself. Um, some young people who left earlier, you know, uh, it's a very diverse, interesting group. Um, and, and so I see some of the formers there. And finally, there's a, a Facebook group that's been made public in the press um, called Former and Transitioning FSOs. That's gone from like 300 people, I think, a couple of years ago to like 3,000 people today. So these are people who are, you know, either had left recently or transitioning out and, you know, doing career network, networking and so on. So, um, yeah, but, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people uh, have families and, and, you know, you get that full pension after 20 years that I lost because I left earlier. Uh, there's a lot of benefits, including lifetime health care, just like the military. So there's, it's, it's easy to say, but hard to do for many people because they have you know, families to support and so on. Um, so some people, I think, are just hiding out in embassies overseas, keeping their heads down. You know, in many countries, the, the tension is not on them, so they continue doing the work. And of course, we want good people to be doing that work. Um, but I think by all, by all accounts that I've heard, morale is, is, is low, especially in Washington maybe a little bit better overseas. Um, but um, yeah, regardless of what, what side you're on, you know, it's been hard to do a, a diplomacy under this administration. If, if for no other reason than, you know, the, the tweets, the kind of, you know, whiplash inducing, <laughs> you know, policy shifts, um, you know, the attacks on our allies and all that has been really, really difficult. Um, just personally, why did you decide to leave uh, the Foreign Service and go into academia? 
Yeah, I, mean, I was in academia, you know, I, I mean, I did my, my PhD uh, and I, at that point was the first time when I faced that decision. I had, had was finishing at, at Berkeley. Uh, it was a, an adjunct at a, at a Catholic school called the University of San Diego uh, there for the last couple of years, just teaching part-time and finishing my dissertation. And I went on the job market, just like everybody. Again, I had very little, almost no connection to Washington. So I went, you know, applied for, for some jobs in, in, as I knew the academic job market, although it was a bit better then than it mm-hmm. is now. You know, I applied for academic jobs, applied for, uh, uh, for a CIA analyst. I applied for the Foreign Service, took the exam. And um, in the end, uh, I had a, uh, almost at the same time, I had an offer at University College London, which is a you know, good research university in, in the UK, but at a horrible salary, to be honest. I would have lived like a, like a pauper, you know, eating beans and toast <laughs> <laughs> in a cell or somewhere that. Dodgy, I'm using Chinese-British expressions here, dodgy, <laughs> dodgy uh, London neighborhood. And, um, and I had the uh, uh, um, analyst offer at the CIA, and, and, and I found out that I had you know, passed the Foreign Service oral assessment, which is the second. So I was lucky that I had these options. It was also a slightly better job market for academics. So, um, And I actually took the London job for a week and then reversed myself. Um, you know, I think I felt a lot of pressure at a place like Berkeley, which is very academic, where I finished my PhD, you know, to, to be an academic. It's sort of like a calling, like a priesthood, and mm-hmm. leaving it's kind of like a thing to, you know, um, to betraying the priesthood. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was serious, serious pressure. Um, and, yeah. and anyway, so I, um, I uh, you know, reversed myself and decided that, you know, I want to try something else. I don't know if a research university was the right place for me. I would appreciate just the pressure to publish, publish, publish. And so I, uh, I took, and, and in the CAA thing, you know, I would have been in a cubicle in, in Langley all the time. It just didn't seem like the right, the right choice uh, for a lot so of So the reasons. Jack Ryan show isn't, isn't what happens with, uh, with CIA analysts really, Not, right? Uh, no, no, I think it's, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I visited there. I saw those cubicles and I, I was like, I don't know. And also, you know, it's very kind of secretive, maybe not as secretive as the clandestine side, but still. So, you know, the Foreign Service seemed, seemed exciting. I had, when I had been a Fulbrighter during my PhD research, I'd come into contact with some FSOs. So I had, you know, some, some sense at least. So I decided to go for that. And then you know, quite a few years later, when I was in Libya during this horrible tragedy, Benghazi, um, you know, it was a hard time. I decided to look at the academic job market again and, um, and you know, saw Pomona on there, my uh, younger sister and her husband. And, um, and her husband's sister had all gone to Pomona, so I, I didn't know it um, by that point. My sister's quite a bit younger than me. She's a 2004 uh, graduate, um, international relations. Um, I got Pierre, Pierre Engelbert was her advisor. Um, so I have some family ties. I knew Pomona was a great place. You know, I applied on a whim, only place I applied and um, got a nice note back from Pierre saying, uh, you know, that they were interested. So, um, uh, but by that point, because the Pomona process dragged on a bit, I had been offered my next posting in the Foreign Service, um, which was which was to be the, the American consul in Nagoya, Japan, which was in many ways, you know, like the dream posting for a lot of people because you're like a little ambassador, you know, you have your own your own post. I would have had like mm-hmm. a, a you know the car with the little flags or something, <laughs> the trappings, <laughs> trappings of power, and uh, and so I uh, so it wasn't an easy decision because I because you know I was mid career and I wasn't maybe the you know star star foreign service officer but i certainly was doing okay and i and i um you know was, was taking a, a pay cut obviously and was also giving up that fabulous retirement package which by that point would have been only you know another decade or so and it goes quite fast when you're you know ro- rotating around the world um but i also knew that pomona was a fabulous place i knew that you know i, I still kind of um uh harbored uh 
um, you know, this desire to teach and to, and to um, have the freedom of being an academic. Um, I knew that probably a chance like this might not come along again in the future. Um, my family was in California at that point, I was single, but my, my, uh, my parents, um, brother and sister and parents were you know, aging. So there was a whole bunch of things that came together, but, but to be you know, perfectly frank, it wasn't an easy decision because the foreign service is a fabulous career. And I, I felt like I, I was, um, this was still under the Obama administration. And I felt like I was um, making a difference and, and you know, I love the languages, I love the cultures. And I, uh, uh, you know, so like Obama said about his intervention in Libya, it was a 51-49 decision, but I'm very happy I, I made it. Tell us a little bit about the classes you teach at Pomona. So the one I taught every semester is the foreign policy class, which I alluded to uh, just a few moments ago. Um, and that's been fun to teach every semester because, because I can keep it fresh um, uh, with, uh, with the latest um, you know, happenings in the world. And certainly a lot of content. Yeah, a lot of content on foreign <laughs> policy. And you know, hopefully I've gotten a little bit better at, at it over, over time. Uh, the students keep it, keep it alive because many students who take it are obviously interested, so they, they follow things. And I try to mix it up with a little bit of theory and a little bit of, of, of how foreign policy really works, which has a lot to do, for instance, with you know, individual personalities and doing the research for that, that book that Mark kindly mentioned. You know, I kept hearing that over and over again. You know, the policy changed because the person changed. You know, Hillary Clinton went out and John Kerry came in and John Kerry's approach to the Arab world was very different than Hillary Clinton. And that, you know, ends up making a huge difference, right? That's something that, that theories don't always capture very well. Mm-hmm. So I try to capture a little bit of that and the students always do an exercise on, on understanding the personalities of top foreign policy leaders. Um, I've done some classes on the Middle East. The last three iterations have been with, with my colleague at Scripps, Sumita Pahwa, and I think we're a good team. She brings a certain expertise. I bring certain expertise and different approaches um, uh, to, to, to the contemporary Middle East. Um, I've done a class on human rights, democracy, and U.S. foreign policy, which has been a, a driving interest of my research. Um, a couple of other classes here and there on democratization. So. So on that note, we're very reluctantly going to have to wrap this up. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking about American diplomacy with politics professor um, Mietek Bodoshinsky. Thanks, Mietek. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. That was great. Okay. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.